Welcome back to Haynes and Boone's On Track podcast, where we talk about legal and business issues related to the coronavirus pandemic. We're seeing some positive trends with infection rates and the rollout of vaccination programs, but many businesses remain mired in a slump. But there is some good news on the way with uh, the infusion of added funds to the Paycheck Protection Program. The PPP program, as it's known, was first brought online about a year ago. And late last year, with the Omnibus Consolidated Authorization Act, the federal government infused $284 billion of new funding into the PPP program and provided also some tax incentives to help businesses recover from economic fallout related to the pandemic. We're going to talk about the, these two new measures today that were brought online by the Consolidated Authorization Act. And to do that, we have two guests from our Dallas office. First up is Brent Beckert, who's an associate in our M&A practice group, and Scott Thompson, a counsel in our employee benefits and executive compensation practice. I'm Nathan Koppel, the director of media relations at Haynes & Boone, and I'm going to moderate today's discussion. Before we get started, a little bit of housekeeping with our usual disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only, is not intended to be legal advice, and does not establish an attorney-client relationship. The topics we discuss are subject to change. Legal advice of any nature should be sought from your legal counsel. Brent, you had mentioned some of the changes to, to first draw loans, and I may have you spell out the distinction between first and second draw loans and then talk about some of the changes to first draw loans. Sure. So um, the first draw loans are the the loans that everybody has been familiar with and that have been kind of open uh, since last April of uh, 2020. Um, And what the omnibus bill did is it said, if you have taken your first draw loan, you've spent all the money in accordance with the rules that we've prescribed, um, and you fit within these additional eligibility requirements uh, we will allow you to take out a second loan, which which is kind of commonly referred to as a second draw loan um, under the PPP program. And so the bill uh, contains a whole new pot of money for these second draw loans. And what we're actually seeing right now is, um, you know, those loans are going through. There, there's a we're currently in the middle of a two-week window where the eligibility is kind of um, reserved for very small businesses of, with companies with uh, employees of 20 or less. Um, but in any event, the second draw loan program is off the ground. And there's also, they're still doing first draw loans for uh, borrowers who either didn't participate because they didn't want to or because they didn't feel like they were eligible at the time. And now it's it's clear that they are eligible. And so we're we're actually seeing some borrowers get their first loans and others uh, get their second. And what's the, the deadline to apply for first draw loans? All of the loans um, need to be taken out by March 31st right now of 2021. So in, at the end of this month, um, I will caution that we, we do think that that timeline will probably get pushed out in the coming weeks, given the interest uh, in the program, especially with the second draw loans and given the uh length of time it's taken for, for some of this to get off the ground and for borrowers to actually receive the funds. And so as of right now, it's March 31st, but we expect that to change in the coming weeks. Any revisions of, of note to the permitted expenditures uh, of for loan amounts? 
Sure. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think everybody's familiar with PPP as the payroll protection program, and it is still the case that you have to spend 60% uh, of your loan on payroll. Um, whereas the old uh, regime allowed you to spend the rest on uh, rent or um mortgage interest uh, or utilities, uh, the new legislation does increase the, the scope of what I would call non-payroll expenditures and, and what you can spend it on. So just by way of example, um, the, the bill, the, there's pretty detailed definitions in the bill, and I, and I would encourage the listeners to talk to their own counsel to make sure that what they're seeking to uh, spend the funds on falls within it. But, but at a high level, um, you know, you can now spend the money on software or cloud computing services. Uh, so accounting software, uh, storage, you know, Dropbox type subscriptions, that, that type of stuff would now be eligible. Um, there's a new category called covered property damage costs. Uh, and so if your business was affected by um, the marches and the public disturbances last summer, uh, if there was vandalism that, that affected your property and it was not covered by insurance, those type of expenditures would now be covered. Um, covered supplier costs. And so if you have pre-existing contracts that were in effect um, for, for over a year and that were um, with suppliers of the business, payments to those suppliers would now be covered. And then fourth, and this is a big one and probably relevant to a lot of the listeners, if you have spent um, money, either CapEx or you know, operating expenses on kind of worker or customer protection measures in light of the coronavirus, um, those would now be covered. And so if for example, if you are a restaurant and you helped uh, put up a drive-through or you spent money on uh, barriers uh, to keep customers safe uh, or PPE for your employees, all of those would now be permitted expenditures. So, I, you know, I think that the first part I mentioned about, you know, kind of the software and accounting services, um, the supplier payments, and then this PPE health worker protection, I think that will give a lot of flexibility to these businesses um, to, to maximize their forgivable amounts. Now, I will say, though, that at the end of the day, you still have to spend 60% on payroll. And so that's still going to be far and away the most important thing to focus on when when thinking about when to, you know, how much of a loan to take out and how much of it would be forgivable. Okay, Brent, I'm going to turn now to uh, to second draw loans and ask you about about those. And, and if you could talk about some of the eligibility standards for, for second draw loans. Sure. Yeah. So the, the short answer is that um, a lot of borrowers who may have qualified for a first draw loan uh, will not, as it stands right now, be eligible for a second draw loan. Um, what Congress has done and what the SBA is following up with through the regs is tighter requirements to to try to uh, kind of target the relief for the businesses that need it most. And so um, there's two big changes here. One, um, the rule, the employee uh, size standard that everybody was kind of familiar with through the last year is that if you had 500 employees or less, uh, you know, together with your affiliates, you would be eligible. Um, that, that number has been reduced to 300 employees. And so now um, the general rule of thumb is that if you have 300 employees or less, uh, and unless you you know, otherwise qualify under a waiver of affiliation or some some other reason, um, you would be eligible. But if you've got 400, uh, 450 employees or, or whatever, you, you would not be eligible. The other issue is that you have to show a reduction in your gross receipts. 
um, on a year-over-year basis. And so when looking at any quarter in 2020, you have to be able to show a 25% reduction in gross receipts you know, as compared to that, that same quarter in 2019. And this has really, frankly, caused a lot of confusion for borrowers. Um, there, there's rules about, well, what about new businesses or ones that weren't in, um, you know, in business for the entire um, span of 2019 or even 2020? How, how do they um, work through those numbers? But there's also some confusion about um, how you calculate gross receipts. And so we encourage everybody to work with their lender um, and their accountants on, on that. But at, at, at a high level, uh, you're really supposed to include all, all types of revenue that the business receives and that all of your affiliates receive. And so if you are a uh, part of a, a large affiliated corporate group, it's, it's actually a much more complicated uh, analysis because you've got to aggregate those gross receipts from businesses um, that may or may not be directly related to, you know, kind of your business. And so um, it, it has been a, a pretty time intensive pro- process for borrowers as they work through that. And the more you can get ahead of that issue and certainly ahead of, you know, by the time you apply, but working through those numbers, um, with your accountants and with your lenders, you know, in advance, you know, make everybody uh, make the application process go through a lot smoother. Is, is it your sense that the pace of applications have, have been steady? Has it slowed down or even picked up of late? Uh, well, I think the applications have been steady and we've heard plenty of anecdotal reports about uh, funds being dispersed. But we are, as I mentioned earlier, in a two week pause for for most uh large companies where uh, the SBA is, t- is telling lenders we're just not going to accept applications for right now for any companies with 20 or more employees. And so um, right now, everybody is kind of sitting in a queue, uh, except for those small businesses that are applying now, which is you know part of the rationale is they want, obviously, the smallest businesses who may not have, um, you know, close relationships with lenders or otherwise um, are, are, are not otherwise staying you know, abreast of the developments on a day-to-day basis, giving them a chance to apply before the funds run out. But, but we do expect, I mean, there's still, uh, as of a week ago, you know, more than half of the appropriated funds were still out there. Uh, we, we do expect the new omnibus, or I'm sorry, the new COVID relief bill kind of winding its way through Congress right now to put more money in the program. And so um, this is not quite the same rush to the banks that we saw last spring. Um, we do think that this will be a little bit more of a calm and uh, <laughs> we would hope orderly process. Yeah, and I want to come back to the new COVID relief measure a little bit later in the podcast. Scott, I'm going to turn to you next to talk about payroll tax credits. Um, the CARES Act introduced a, a payroll tax credit for employers and in the most uh, in the COVID relief measures under the um, Consolidated Authorization Act, I understand there were changes to the rules governing the employee retention tax credit. I was going to see if you could walk us through those changes. Sure. And yeah, the changes to the employee retention tax credit under the CAA actually uh, made the credit available to more employers, which is a good thing. The uh, credit as originally enacted under the CARES Act was a credit against an employer's social security taxes. So that's the employer side of those taxes for qualified wages paid between March 12th and December 31st of 2020. Now, what constituted qualified wages for purposes of the tax credit depended on the number of employees that you had. Um, If you had more than 100 employees, you could only claim the credit on wages you paid to folks who were not 
eligible or not able to work, either because of a full or partial governmental shutdown order or that you had, the employer had experienced a 50% or greater decline in their gross receipts from the same quarter in the prior year. Credit was determined on an annual basis. It was paid on the first $10,000 of qualified wages. So the maximum credit for 2020 was $5,000 per employee. One additional caveat to the CARES Act credit is that if you took out a PPP loan, you were not eligible for that credit. And so that really did exclude a lot of employers who needed those PPP loans to keep their operations going. The CAA, however, eliminated the PPP loan exclusion. So now borrowers of PPP loans can claim the credit. That change was retroactive to the original effective date of the credit uh, under the CARES Act. So those employers can now go back, file an amended Form 941 for the fourth quarter of 2020 to claim that credit. Um, Those forms should have been filed already. uh, So you will have to to file a corrected form 941-X if you're going to try to claim that on a retroactive basis. Additionally, um, they lowered the threshold of um, income receipt reduction that is necessary to claim the credit. They dropped that from a 50% decrease to a 20% decrease. They also raised the threshold of determining what constituted qualified wages. The new threshold is 500 employees. Um, Now, under the CAA, you do have to look to the employees of related organizations that share 50% or more common ownership. So those need to be aggregated. That didn't, uh, that was not required under the CARES Act originally. The other big change is that will now apply to the first $10,000 of qualified wages paid in both the first and second quarters of 2021. And they increased the percentage of the credit from 50% to 70%. So now an employer is eligible for up to a $7,000 per employer, per employee, per quarter one and quarter two in 2021. That would mean they're eligible for a maximum of up to $19,000 credit per employee for the fourth quarter of 2020 and then the first two quarters of 2021. It's also important to know that when you're calculating your $10,000 of qualified wages, you cannot double dip and count wages paid either under the FFCRA, that's the paid uh, family or employee um, sick leave or uh, amounts that were used to calculate payroll costs under your PPP loan forgiveness application. Thanks for that, Scott. I, I also wanted to ask you about recent changes regarding the deferral of Social Security taxes. Um, can you can you talk about that as well? Absolutely. And this is in addition to the retention credit originally adopted under the CARES Act and then expanded under the CAA. And there were two types of Social Security tax deferrals uh, that were passed in 2020, but the CAA only affects one of those. The first deferral that was enacted, which was not in the CARES Act, but was not affected by the CAA, was an employer's eligibility to defer their share of employee Social Security taxes from March 2020 through the end of 2020, and they could defer those until the end of 21 and 2022. 50% of the deferral was due by December 31st, 2021, and the remaining 50% is due December 31, 2022. The CAA did not change um, any of the requirements around that deferral or the repayment. 
timing provisions. The employee social security deferral has been changed under the CAA. Now, originally this um, deferral was enacted by an executive order. It was later, um, the IRS later issued guidance to help implement that executive order because the order had a lot of holes. There were a lot of uh, unanswered question the way that the order was originally drafted. The order stated that for an employee who earns less than $104,000 per year, and you would determine that on a pay period by pay period basis, that they could defer um, their social security taxes until some point in 2021. Now, the period that they could defer those taxes was from September 1 through December 31, 2020. And so the question remained, well, when are they going to have to repay that? That was not answered in the executive order. Was the deferral mandatory or was it permissive? That was not in the executive order. Uh, how you're going to report and track this was not in the executive order. And then who bears the ultimate responsibility for paying those taxes was not in the executive order. Because of that, many employers were cautious about implementing this um form of relief. And they really were waiting for additional guidance from the government, which we got just a couple of days before the effective date of the relief. But the notes from the IRS did actually give some helpful information. Most importantly, it said that the deferral of employee share of their social security taxes was permissive. It's not mandatory. It's at the employer's discretion. So they could choose to do it or they could choose not to do it. Uh, is completely within their control. The notice also said that since the, the deferrals were being taken from wages over the last four months of 2020, they should then be repaid ratably in the first four months of 2021. Um, the notice, however, did not specifically clarify who was ultimately responsible for paying those taxes. Uh, and the concern for employers was under other tax code provisions, it is the employer who bears ultimate responsibility for making sure that the Social Security and other employment taxes are properly withheld and timely remitted to the IRS. And so the issue became, if you had an employee who had deferred some of their Social Security taxes in 2020, what if they terminated employment at some point in 2021 before they had repaid um, those deferred taxes. Uh, and the end result of that was that the employer would be ultimately responsible for making th those payments and would then have to go and try to recover those from the former employee. For that reason, many employers chose not to adopt this relief. Some did. And for those who did, there was one key change to this relief that was enacted in the CAA. And that key change is that instead of... Uh, withholding and remitting the deferred taxes over the first four months of 2021, those can now be withheld and remitted throughout 2021. So they could be radically uh, withheld and remitted uh, from January 1 to December 31 of this year. But again, the same issue um, is possible if you have an employee who terminates employee for whatever reason before they have repaid all of their deferred taxes. Uh, one alternative some employers have been doing. If they permitted folks to take uh, to make these deferrals, they had them sign some sort of agreement or an acknowledgement or an email back that they understood if they terminated employment before these deferred taxes were fully uh, repaid, that the employer could deduct them from the employee's final paycheck. Concern still there is what if that paycheck isn't big enough to cover those deferred taxes? You could still be in the same boat where employer is on the hook. But that is at least a workaround to try to give the employer some protection of not being stuck with taxes that really should have come from an employee. So in light of all these changes, do you think these incentives will be claimed more broadly? Um, what do you think will be the net effect on the extent to which businesses claim these? Yeah. So for the deferral of the employee portion, you know, that had to occur in 
2020. The deferral opportunity ceased December 31 of last year. So if they haven't already permitted that deferral, they can't go back and do that retroactively like they could for the employee retention credit. That is a retroactive change. Same thing to the employer deferral of social security taxes. Uh, There are no changes under the CAA related to that. And it was just for wages that were paid through the end of December, 2020. So if they haven't taken advantage of these deferral uh, opportunities, it's really too late. Um, The only changes here is how and when those need to be repaid. Got it. Thanks, Scott. Um, Brent, I'm going to I'm going to turn back to you. I know there's a lot of hope that we'll we'll get further COVID relief uh, under the new Biden administration. Can you tell me a little bit about the the, the American Rescue Plan Act? Sure. Um, yeah. So we are closely watching this bill as it winds its way through Congress. Um, it, it passed the House. Uh, late last week and is currently in the Senate um, and, and expected to be signed uh, by President Biden in the next uh, two or three weeks or so. Um, the bill does a few things um, related to PPP and some of the issues we've described today. Um, one, it puts some additional funding uh, into the appropriations um, for PPP. And so uh, not a ton, but $7.25 billion um, to, to hopefully allow more borrowers to participate. It also expands the pool of uh, nonprofits who would be eligible uh, for a PPP loan, either a first or second draw loan, um, by by a few ways. One, it allows nonprofits to participate um, even if they're not a 501c3 or 501c6, but expands it to 501c7s and um, other Nonprofits, you know, one that we we get a lot of questions on are um, kind of social clubs, golf courses, membership organizations that that aren't actually a 501c3 and are not a for-profit corporation. Um, under this new legislation, a lot of those uh, would be eligible. You know, for example, uh, and the other thing it does is it waives affiliation rules for these nonprofits, um, such that as long as you have, you know, in the case of a, a second draw loan, 300 employees per location. Um, you would be able to get out of some of the affiliation tests that may have otherwise tripped up a nonprofit. And so treats them a little bit more similar uh, to restaurants and how they've been uh, treated uh, throughout the first and second draw loans. The other thing, and I think this is very exciting for a lot of folks, um, is that apart from PPP, there is a new uh, proposal to create a separate kind of relief a grant program for restaurants, uh, what they're calling the Restaurant Revitalization Fund. Um, and this would be uh, a fund that restaurants could apply to. The, the current amount in the House bill is $25 billion, um, but you know, I think earlier proposals in the House were uh, several times that amount. And so it's a little bit unclear um, both what the final amount in this bill will be when it's, um, if and when it's signed, but also, you know, if, if Amounts are added to that later, um, but as of right now, we twenty-five billion dollars is the amount on the table. Uh, and restaurants could apply for a maximum of ten million dollars per entity or five per location. Um, and so this would allow restaurants to apply. And importantly, they are allowed to get PPP and this, at least as it stands now. Um, and so, <clears throat> what some of the confusion that we've seen um, for you know, arts venues who are applying for PPP, but also kind of keeping an eye on the shuttered venue operator grants um, that were part of the omnibus bill that passed in December is that you could only do one or the other. And, you know, that, that grant program is, uh, 
three months in the making and still has not launched. And so, um, you know, borrowers were having to make some tough choices about whether or not to wait that process out. Here, um, it looks like restaurants would be able to apply for both PPP and this grant. And so it would be a great uh, way to pick up some of these restaurants and help them, you know, improve their bottom lines. That's what we're keeping an eye on um, right now. And then as this winds through the Senate, we do expect additional changes as it goes uh, through the appropriate committees. And so uh, there, there's probably more to come there as well as additional you know, changes in the regulations um, as, as the SBA continues to make modifications. Is it just too early to know whether this would be the last round of stimulus uh, funding or is uh... You know, I don't, I don't think we know. I, you know, I, if you would have asked me last spring, uh, if we would still be talking about PPP in March of 2021, I would have said, you know, there's no way. So I, I think uh, folks are optimistic, uh, cautiously optimistic about the vaccine news, but, um, you know, restaurants and businesses as a whole are still hurting. And as the, the Federal Reserve actually put out a study recently um, talking about not only the, the harm that has been suffered, uh, but about kind of economic confidence going forward and how, uh, you know, a lot of businesses were planning to make pretty drastic cutbacks if additional help isn't on the way. And so um, whether that will be fixed in the next few months or whether additional relief is uh, still needed, I think is anyone's guess at this point. I guess just, just stay tuned. Uh, Brent, thank you very much, Scott. I appreciate it as well. Before we sign off, I'd like to remind everyone that you can find this podcast and other interesting content about COVID-19 legal developments at our COVID-19 resource page at HanesBoone.com. You can also find this and other Haynes and Boone podcasts on most popular podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio, to name a few. Finally, I want to let listeners know that we have a webinar on March 23rd featuring members of the firm's insurance recovery practice group who will discuss what policyholders need to know about the latest court decisions on insurance recovery for COVID-19 related business losses, including understanding what prompted favorable policyholder decisions. I invite you to go to the events link at hainesandboone.com where you will find details on how to register for that webinar. Thanks again, and I hope you can join us for the next episode of On Track.